Welcome to the Wags of SCI podcast, where we discuss life, love, and caregiving after spinal cord injury. Hosted by Elena Polly and Brooke Paget. Let's take a moment to hear from our amazing sponsors. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Wishart Brain and Spine Law. Led by our personal mentor and lawyer, Robin Wishart, Wishart Brain and Spine Law is a uniquely specialized law firm located in Vancouver, British Columbia. They focus their practice on complex spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury cases. And they work with clients all over North America as advocates and a much needed resource in the spinal cord injury community. Robin and her team look at their clients differently than other firms. You're not just a case, you're a person with a family, a life, and a purpose. They are always looking for ways to help improve the quality of life for their clients by providing the support they need for their recovery, such as assisting with insurance and benefits paperwork, finding resources for home adaptations, setting up medical appointments with doctors and specialists, and making sure that their clients are doing physically and mentally okay. Wish Our Brain and Spine Law is proud to support WAGs of SCI. Robin is committed to helping clients and their families any way that she can, because she wants you to live your life and not your claim. Your first consultation is always free. So contact them at brainandspinelaw.com and make sure to mention that the Wags of SDI sent you. This episode is sponsored by Rolling in Paradise. Rolling in Paradise is a disabled-owned and operated family business owned by Annalisa and John, specializing in adaptive equipment for an active lifestyle. John is a C4, C5 quad for 34 years and has been using adaptive equipment for many years. He hand cycles daily and has been in the adaptive equipment industry for over 20 years. Annalisa and John have been together since 2007, and they have two furry kids. They love to be outdoors, going to the beach, cycling, and any activities to enjoy the sunshine. They are proud to offer the following manufacturers. Madeline Handbikes, Sport On Hand Cycles, Reactive Adaptation Hand Cycles, Stricker attachable hand bikes, everyday wheelchairs, including tie light, motion composites, hands-on concepts and colors, power assist devices such as Spinner G, ZX1, Smart Drive, and Freedom Tracks. And lastly, some accessories and other adaptive equipment, Easy Stand, Quadra Grips, Spinner G Wheels, Roho, and Stimulite Cushions, and much, much more. You can contact Annalisa and John by going to their website at rollinginparadise.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wags of SCI podcast with your hosts, Elena Pauly and Brooke Paget. Today, we have an exceptional treat on our hands. We have the very famous Dr. Russell Kennedy joining us. 
Yeah, we're super excited to interview uh, Dr. Russell Kennedy, also known as the Anxiety MD. So I know a lot of our followers have been extremely excited about this podcast, and so are we. We're huge fans. Um, We learned about Dr. Russ through the Holistic Psychologist. Uh, I mean, I think that was almost a year ago now. Um, Just a little intro on Dr. Kennedy. For those of you who do not know who he is already, he's the author of the bestseller called Anxiety Rx. Um, He is also a neuroscientist with a Bachelor of Science from the University of Victoria. He's also a medical doctor from the University of Western Ontario, and he has his master level training in developmental psychology from the Newfield Institute. He's a corporate speaker. He's also an entertainer, and he's also a stand-up comedian since 2000. So he has a lot to say, and he has a lot of varied experiences with anxiety as a medical doctor. But the best part of Dr. Kennedy is that he struggled with anxiety for most of his life, severe anxiety. And for those of you that have read the book or done his courses, um, it's it's really meaningful to speak to someone who has a Western medicine background, who has kind of gone through all of the treatments that are common nowadays for anxiety, but couldn't fix his own anxiety. So Dr. Kennedy, we're really, really excited. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's it's great to be here, Elaine and Brooke. I it's it's interesting as I'm a little a little out of water with spinal cord injuries because so much of my work involves the body, but I, I think I can translate it over as best I can to to help you as much as I can. That's so awesome. Um, you know, we were talking about it before we started recording about how our our community is so varied as in like we have the one half of the community, which is, you know, women who care for their partners, who are caregivers, who are may not be caregivers, but they're dealing with the spinal cord injury alongside their partners as well. And then we also have the other half of we have a lot of men who listen to us who have spinal cord injuries and they have a lot of them have severe anxiety and a lot of them have untreated anxiety and a lot of them are on so many medications that create anxiety. And so we're really looking forward to talking to you today. Um, we wanted to start off with just, you know, discussing your personal story because your story is very, very interesting and it's very, very unique. And do you want to get into like how you kind of your, your journey with anxiety and how you came to the place you're in now? Yeah, sure. Uh, I grew up with a father who had schizophrenia and bipolar illness. So there was always some form of chaos around the house. If, if my father wasn't getting depressed or manic or, or kind of schizophrenic, um, we were just waiting for it. So there was always this sense of anticipation all the time, like when, and this vigilance, this constant vigilance, which I'm sure, you know, your crowd can relate to is this, you're always waiting for that other shoe to drop. And, you know, especially with spinal cord injuries, things can go south very quickly with fevers and, you know, you never really know what to do. So that's kind of my background was this hypervigilance. And I learned how to be very, you know, attuned to other people. And I kind of lost that attunement with myself. And when you, when you lose connection with yourself like that, um, anxiety kind of follows because I really is, you know, all anxiety is separation anxiety really. And it's mostly separation from yourself, but it can be separation from the people that you care about. And, you know, especially if that happens in childhood, you know, we don't really develop this kind of sense of that the world is a safe place 
that the world is a place that we can, we can just allow to be what it is. And then when you add, you know, a chronic illness or a chronic injury on top of that, the world does seem like an unsafe place. And if you have a, a predilection towards anxiety to start with, it's only going to exacerbate it. So my background is that I grew up with a father who was loving and caring a lot of the time, but often, you know, would go into these either manic phases or depressed phases. And I didn't really know what to expect. So there was a lot of uncertainty in my childhood, a lot of chaos in my childhood in a way. And so I kind of just adapted this hypervigilant, this chronic vigilance looking for, you know, what could go wrong next. And rather than looking at things and really feeling things that were going right, which is probably most of the time, actually, I started to focus on the negative all the time. And if, you know, one of the tenets of neuroscience is, you know, whatever you focus on consciously or unconsciously, you'll get more of that. So I just got more vigilant as time went by. And then that went through medical school and and uh, which made me a very good doctor, being very vigilant and uh, making sure that I followed up all the all the tests and everything that I needed to. But um, it also took a, a big toll on my mental health as well. Wow, that's incredible that you were able to navigate going to school and becoming a doctor all through the anxiety and everything you were going through. Um, I know that that can be really hard to navigate, especially like what you were saying earlier with, you know, waiting for the next shoe to drop with that alarm going off in your system when it comes to SCI, we can definitely speak to that. Um, Mm. Right, Brooke, especially right out of rehab. It was sort of like you get left, the nurses are gone, the doctors are gone and you get left with your partner. So that has been a huge one to navigate in our community. And I don't think it ever really goes away or shuts off, I think we just sort of adapt and learn how to manage it in a better way. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I I, honestly, like, um, there's just, there's so much deep anxiety, um, in our community that a lot of people aren't even aware that they have it. Like a lot of women don't even know what hypervigilance is. Um, so thank you for explaining that because it makes a lot of sense, right? It makes so much sense. And, um, when you're put in a position where you have to like, like us, where, you know, both our partners are quadriplegics, where they have limited function and we have to assist them, um, with a lot of their, you know, daily activities, daily tasks. I remember I used to, you know, a couple of years after my partner was injury injured, I used to still be waking up in the night and checking his pulse and making sure he was, he was safe because especially when you go through the injury with your partner, it's almost mm. like, oh, you took your attention away and it's somehow your fault. That's how I took it. It somehow is something that I could have prevented. And so, you know, when I was reading your book, there was a lot that I could relate to you um, on as how you like create those, you know, hypervigilant stories in your mind and you like follow them and you don't even know you're doing it. Right. Yeah. And it's self-reinforcing in a way because the more you're vigilant and you check and they're okay, you're kind of like almost Pavlovian in a way. You're almost um, making sure that you keep doing that. Yeah. Because, you know, you check and they're okay and you check and they're okay and you check and they're okay. So it just, it just sets you up for this, this vigilance, which is okay if you can kind of become a little zen around it and just understand that that's what you're doing. But if we yeah. do it sort of automatically and unconsciously, it starts to, it really starts to take over your life is this sense of like, I've always got to be on guard. I've always got to be on edge. And that's, it's a very difficult way to live as, as you know. Well, it is because it's so unnatural, right? It just feels yeah. unnatural. Your body's not meant to be doing this. Otherwise, it wouldn't feel so bad, right? You wouldn't feel stressed all the time. Um, but, my anx- but my anxious people, just to break in there for a sec, my anxious people, you know, they, they feel like that anyway. 
Like they, they, yeah. that's, that's their life mm-hmm. in general. So, so it is one of those things that when I, when I talk to my anxious patients who aren't, who don't have a chronic illness, right? That's how they feel most of the time. It's wow. like they are hypervigilant all of the time, mostly due to sort of, you know, wounding in their childhood that never got resolved. And they're still sort of acting that out. So it's really a matter of just becoming really aware of, you know, what your, what your, you know, vigilance pattern is. Are you constantly checking or can you let things go? And if you let things go, does that cause anxiety? Right. So it, it's really, it's, it's really awareness as to, okay, what's going on with me? Can I, can I center in myself? Can I put my hand on my chest? Can I breath? Can I take a breath? You know, as a medical doctor, sometimes I want to have a bit of a seizure because it's so antithetical to how I was trained as a medical doctor is, you know, treat things with, you know, medications and cover up the symptoms and that rather than just sort of embrace the symptoms as best as you can and try and adopt a, a different attitude towards them that's empowering rather than, you know, it's so easy to fall into victim. Like it's just so easy to fall into victim. Um just with any kind of mental illness, but especially with something as devastating as a spinal cord injury. Well, and the whole system is set up so that you become reliant, you know, you become reliant on the pills, you become reliant on somebody else helping you. And that was, that's always been my big issue is like, I don't want to be reliant on somebody like my, my body is telling me something, Um, whether it's, you know, an alarm that's locked inside of me, it's trying to get my attention for a reason, right? And it's not okay to me to cover those things up. And that's just my personal view is like, I've never been the type that has been like, okay, you know, let's take this medicine and cover this up and just, it'll just go away because that's just the symptom, right? That's not the actual root cause. And this is actually a really good time to get into your journey with, with medications. And when, when did you, did you take any medications yourself and, and, um, What's your journey with medications and all the medications, the herbal stuff too? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've taken, I still take a bunch of supplements and stuff, but uh, but I, I I was on SSRI, like I think I've taken every SSRI over the course of, you know, 25 years of dealing with it, Paxil, Prozac, uh, Celexa, Cymbalta, all that kind of stuff. And I found that it did kind of drop my anxiety from say a seven out of 10 to about a four or a five, which is still, you know, I'm still feeling fairly anxious, but I also had all sorts of, you know, sexual dysfunction, sweating, brain zaps, all that kind of stuff from the SSRI. So they were really kind of a last, you know, a last ditch effort to, you know, when I was just completely exhausted and I had no other choice, I would go on SSRIs. Now I haven't, I haven't taken SSRIs now for over seven years, I think it's, or at least over six or five. So it is one of those things that I think once you learn different strategies and pathways, and as you say, go at the root cause, uh, the medications aren't so needed anymore. You know, there's days where I feel like I would love to take medication, but it's just like, it, it's kind of like, I'll never have a normal psyche. I don't think I'll always have that sort of edge into anxiety and alarm, but now my perception of it is so different. You know, and as someone asked me the other day, so like, well, how can you write a book on anxiety if you still feel like you have some anxiety? And I said, well, I don't think any of us ever really get anxiety free, but I'm a million times better than I was five years ago. And I think it's just, you know, if when you rely on traditional methods, you know, like CBT and all that kind of thing, there's, there's a limit 
to what CBT can do for you. It changes your, your mental state, but I think it's the real, it's the physiological state that determines what your psychological state is. So the more things you can do to understand your own physiological state and manage that yourself and, and be proactive about that, the less likely you are on that sort of leading edge of, you know, dropping into anxiety if one more thing happens. And I think that's the change with me is that I, I didn't really need medications uh, so much anymore. I could, I could still have the anxiety or what I, as, as I call it, alarm. I could have the alarm, but it was quite manageable. Like it was quite like I could feel it and allow myself to feel it. And as long as I didn't add, start adding compulsive thoughts to it, negative thoughts to it, the alarm would kind of fade away on its own. And I learned that. I learned that if you can separate the alarm in your body the, or the feeling of alarm in general from the thoughts that you can start breaking the cycle. Because what most of us do is we feel alarm in our bodies, whether or not we're consciously aware of it or not. And this is a good metaphor for a spinal cord injury or just people in general feel alarm in their bodies and they're not aware of it. I have so many of my patients that I see that don't know that they have alarm in their body. They assume that their anxiety is strictly in their mind. Yeah. So that's literally uh, like 99.9% of people. Most of people. Yeah. Most people. Yeah. That's yeah. Let's, this is actually a good time to get into like the alarm and the, um, your kind of physiological view of anxiety, because while it's, you know, starting to become more common where, you know, body-based feelings and body-based anxieties and stuff, it is definitely not mainstream and it's not accepted at all in the Western medicine community, um, or at least to my knowledge, but do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the basic story behind it is is that I think what happens with people is that when we're children, we experience a trauma that's too much for us to bear. And, you know, some of us are, are born just more sensitive than others. You know, some people, some children can handle fairly significant traumas and work their way through it. And other children who are very sensitive get a relatively minor trauma and kind of collapse in a way. So I think what happens is that we have these traumas that are too much for our little child mind to bear. And I think what what the system does is it starts sequestering or, or pushing these traumas down into the body. And then what happens is that that energy has to go somewhere. So that's, that state of alarm gets pushed into the body. And this is what I get people to find. It's like, where, do, where does your alarm sit? Some people, they have it in their throat. Some people, they have it around their heart. Some people, it's in their solar plexus. Some people, it's in their belly. And I get them to find, like, where do you feel the alarm? I take people into like a trauma from their past, not the worst trauma ever, but a trauma that causes some, some consternation to them. And then we track it in the body. It's like, well, where do you feel that? Well, I kind of feel it around my heart area. Well, is it, how big is it? Is it the size of a fist or a cantaloupe? It's like, well, it's kind of like a walnut. Okay. Is it dense, you know, like a diamond or is it kind of fluffy like cotton candy? Well, it's kind of maybe in the middle, you know, is it hot, cold? Well, maybe it's hot, you know, and then is it sharp or dull? And I, I go into that. I really try and drill down to that sense of alarm because that's the sense that people avoid and they go up into their heads and they overthink and they ruminate because when you overthink and ruminate, it keeps you out of that place in your body where you hold that alarm. So people with childhood wounding and childhood alarm often will get into overthinking and, and, and rumination and vigilance as a way of just not feeling. 
Because when you go back into your body and you go into feel, you have to go face to face with that old, old alarm that you stuffed down there when you were five, six, 12, 13 years old. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that one thing to note about, um, you know, anxiety in general is that especially f- for women that are going through SEI with their partners is that it can be a positive thing sometimes, I, I want to say. <clears throat> I mean, the anxiety is sort of what allows you to realize that something's off and sometimes it's the driving force to push you forward to get things done, right? Yeah. Um, and that can be seen that way. But I, but I like how you mentioned that if that continues on and you continue, you know, that thought pattern over time, it's almost becomes like second nature and you don't know how to turn it off. Um, one of the questions that we had from one of our um, followers was, what if we don't have that childhood trauma that you're speaking of, yeah. um, you know, and like no traumatizing events that they can say, oh, oh, you know, that was it. That was that one thing that really messed me up. Um, what would you say about that? Well, there's a couple of things. I, I, you know, I've had a number of patients see me and they say, you know, my childhood was great. My parents were great. They're still together that kind of thing. And, and I'll talk to them and I'll find out that, oh yeah, you know, my mother, mom and dad split when I was, you know, seven years old for a year. And, uh, but it wasn't a big deal, you know, or, you know, after I was born, my mother was in the hospital for, you know, four weeks and I, I couldn't see her, but it wasn't a big deal. You know, so, so one is that we sometimes have a lot of blind spots as to what really does cause trauma, especially before the age of seven years old. So the number of people that I've, I've found that have had, um, like prenatal trauma, like the, their mother had to be hospitalized and they didn't have access to her for the first month. Um, it creates a tremendous amount of anxiety. And then there's the issue of, um, Mark Willin's book. It, it didn't start with you about inherited family trauma. So there's a bunch of ways that we actually get trauma. I, I, it's rare that I see someone with significant anxiety. I mean, we all have anxiety in life, but it's, it's rare that I see somebody with significant anxiety that I can't track back to a place that, you know, either, um, they had their, their mother went through uh, a, a car accident when they were in utero or, you know, there's, there's all these little traumas that show up like separation traumas that show up that we don't classically cl- consider traumatizing. You know, a lot of times we think, oh, you know, my father was an alcoholic and he would rage. It's like, yeah, classic trauma. But there's also forms of trauma of abandonment and loss and separation from a parent that we don't look back and say, oh, okay, well, that actually was a significant trauma. I just didn't acknowledge it. And especially before the age of five, because we don't often uh, record that as, as trauma, as a memory that we can, we can bring back up. Now there are people that have kind of like idyllic childhoods and that kind of thing and still have anxiety. And sometimes with those people, I'll see like an inherited pattern, like someone was, was, um, you know, a parent was in the Holocaust or a parent was in, you know, World War II or, and, and was a prisoner of war or something like that. So there, there is evidence that, that trauma can be handed down from parent to child through like non-coding DNA and, and, and different kind of factors. So anybody I've seen with significant anxiety, almost always I can track back some kind of trauma. So you know, we all, and we all have trauma. It depends. And it also depends on how sensitive you are too. Some of us were born a lot more sensitive than others. So what would be considered a trauma to some people would not be considered a trauma to others. So typically, 
You know, I don't want to make every all anxiety trauma, but all anxiety is separation of some kind and it's separation from ourselves. And if you look close enough, you can almost always find some element of that in people with significant anxiety. Like I said, I mean, we all have anxiety to some extent, and I'm sure having a partner with a spinal cord injury is very anxiety provoking and very alarming. Um, and, and if you have, you know, a classically, you know, well attached childhood, you're probably in the best position to handle that. Now, if you had trauma when you were younger, whether you knew it or not, having that additional you know, stress may sort of rekindle some of the old trauma that you felt in childhood that you may not even be aware of. Now, that was a fairly long answer, but that's the best one I got at this point. That's a really great answer. And I feel like um, some of the prenatal trauma that you speak of or the generational trauma, it's still sort of a new topic to be discussed. Oh, sure. Um, You know, I feel like a lot of people sort of think, oh, what is this like hokey pokey voodoo magic sort of thing that you speak of? Totally. And uh, I wonder why that is. What are your thoughts around that? Well, I mean, I think it's just, that's the typical Western medicine thing. You know, if I can't reduce it, if I can't quantify it, it's not real. And well, maybe, you know, that's the reason why Western medicine hasn't been very good at treating things is because they don't even know what the frick they're dealing with. Right. So if you don't know what you're dealing with, um, you know, Rachel Yehuda at Mount Sinai in New York does a lot of work with children of Holocaust survivors. So the children themselves were not exposed to the Holocaust or or anything like that, but they have significant issues with anxiety and depression over and above the the general population. So it's like, okay, well, what's the natural, what's the natural conclusion to draw from that is that they did have trauma, it was stored in their body and then it was transmitted, you know, when they, when they, and again, it's, it's, it's not a, a perfect. It's not a perfect theory, but it certainly explains that discrepancy in the number of, in the, in the Holocaust survivor children having a much higher rate of anxiety, depression, OCD, eating disorders, that kind of thing than the general population. Yeah. So there, there, there are things that we just don't understand. And that's one of the things about Western medicine. If we don't understand it, if we can't reduce it, or if we feel helpless, if the doctors feel helpless, there's, there's, you know, the, the anger and resentment that builds up within doctors is considerable because as doctors, we went into medicine to try and make a difference, to try and help. And then when you deal with something as, as, you know, quote unquote permanent as a spinal cord injury for a physician, that's kind of a tough thing to handle because we know there's only so much healing that we can, that we can provide for people. And I think that that creates, uh, you know, a lot of angst inside of physicians. I do a lot of work on physician burnout. And one of the big features is that when you have patients that you really can't help, those, that, that kind of patient population is very burnout provoking. Now, it's nothing to do with the, the patients themselves. It's due, is much more due to the, the physician psyche of feeling like they have agency, feeling like they didn't do something, feeling like they're powerful. And, you know, we tend to go for what we know also, and we are trained in a very pharmaceutically based model. So we will see someone and within the first two or three minutes of them talking to us, we've already got three potential medications in our head that we're going to use. And, you know, that may work to some extent for physical ailments, but I find that for emotional ailments, often that we can cause more harm than good. Well, this is actually a really good time to get into your actual burnout and kind of your breaking point um, as sure. a doctor. Um, what was kind of your point where you were like, 
okay, I can't treat myself this way anymore with these medicines and this isn't working. And then you kind of ventured off into another direction of, you know, yoga, meditation, um, you know, different herbal medicines, psychedelics. I went to India, psychedelics. Yeah, all that yeah, stuff. That yeah, that is so interesting. Can you take as long as you need and talk about that? That's very cool. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think I became a doctor because I was a rescuer caregiver. That's kind of like my my mental model of the world. I became a rescuer caregiver for my mother uh, because she was dealing with an incapacitated father. And I was also trying to, you know, keep my father's spirits up. So that's where I think the stand-up comedy comes from as well. So I have this rescuer complex in me. And, you know, I, I was I was working in a clinic in Vancouver. So I did a walk-in clinic and it was kind of an urgent care walk-in clinic in uh, downtown Kitsilano in Vancouver. And then at night I would go out and do stand-up comedy, which was, you know, which was fun. Um, but I, I found that here, okay, here's the deal. So since I've been a kid, I've had this ability. I, I wouldn't call it psychic, but there's something there that I can see. I can see trauma in people. Right. So I can, I really, I, to the point where I can see what people are wearing when they're five or six years old, I can see the house they live in sometimes. It's very strange for me. So I would see someone come in, um, say a woman with, that had repeated bladder infections. And, and I could see that she was sexually abused as a child in my mind. I could see this, this sort of, um, kind of child who was sexually abused. Now I have seven to eight minutes to deal with that you know, to deal with it. So I can see that the underlying cause is that she, you know, she has, she holds a lot of mental trauma from her sexual abuse and it's coming out energetically in these bladder infections, which may, which sounds really, you know, out there and, and woo woo, but basically that's, that's what I see. So I don't have time. I can't, I can't open up that can of worms with her. Like there's just no way. So I just got really, really frustrated with, with seeing these traumas inside of people that I couldn't get into because I just didn't have the time. Like I just did not have the time to get into these traumas. Like another guy came in to see me and I could see that he was beaten by his dad, you know, and this is one of the issues of like blind spots. Sometimes I would see and, and he'd say, and, and I'd I'd say, do you have any history of like abuse in your background? Cause he had these chronic back pain and he goes, well, yeah, my, my dad used to like physically kind of beat me from the time I was like seven till I was about 12 and that kind of stuff. And I said, well, that's traumatic, dude. You know, I don't know if I said dude, but I said, that's traumatic. You know, he's like, well, you know, it kind of made me tough. It toughened me up. It made me the man that I am today. Like it was a great salesman. So he's like, it made me, you know, not have, not be able to, to take no for an answer and that kind of stuff. And I said, well, it's still, still traumatic. Right. So I can see these things and I know that I can help them, but it takes a while. Like I, you know, it takes me about 90 to 120 minutes to really give someone a full assessment and show them basically the blocks to where they, where they, where they don't love themselves. That's basically what, what I do. So I got frustrated with medicine and it was like, well, I can't just keep giving medications to people. And it, and it showed up. It didn't show up in this sort of altruistic, Oh, you know, you're, you're not doing what you're supposed to do, Dr. Kennedy. It was just this, I, tremendous anxiety and alarm. Like I just, I would go in, I would see a patient, I'd go into the bathroom, I'd breathe, you know, four or five deep breaths. And I come back, I'd see another couple of patients. I go back in and I'd breathe. And then around that time, this is February of 2013. I ruptured, I fully ruptured my left Achilles tendon. 
because I had tendonitis and like the arrogant doctor that I was, I injected it with cortisone and lidocaine and of course it ruptured. So that was my wake up call. That was like, okay, it's time to get out. You know, it's time to get out. That was the straw that broke the doctor's back at that point. So, so I collapsed for about two years. You know, I, I really, I, I left medicine. Um, it was a big part of my identity. I wasn't Dr. Kennedy anymore and I had to find another way. I had to find another way. And then, uh, I met my wife shortly after, <laughs> shortly after my Achilles rupture. I think it was about six or eight months after. And she's wonderful. Like Cynthia is a somatic trauma therapist. So she, she deals with people who have trauma before the age of like seven years old who don't have a story around it. So she really helped me in a lot of ways. And, uh, and she had two sons. So I became kind of a surrogate dad to my two stepsons. And, uh, in that, uh, especially with the youngest one, especially with Michael, cause Michael was around eight or nine when I came into his life and I was able to kind of give Michael the parenting, the dad figure that, excuse me, that my dad couldn't give me. So I kind of got that. I kind of got that not so much that I didn't get it from my dad, but when I was able to give it to another boy, I was able to kind of get fed that way. So it's kind of, it was kind of really interesting how that all kind of turned out. So I just thought, okay, I've got to find a different way of, of healing my anxiety. So I went on this journey of taking psychedelics and, and going and living at a temple in India and uh, just trying all these different non-traditional things to heal my own anxiety. And Did your wife do this with you? No. No, Sin Sin is very, she's very, she, she came with me for ayahuasca, but she wouldn't touch it. Cindy is very conservative, very conservative. So, so, uh, so she was with me when I did ayahuasca, like we went to this little place and, uh, the interior of the province and, and, and I did it with these two shaman and, uh, and then on LSD, I did LSD as well because, and what I found on LSD was that my anxiety that all this time, the neuroscience part of me said, well, this is in your mind. It was clearly in my body on LSD. It showed me that, that it's, it's purple. It's, it's dark. It's dense. It's sharp. It's, it's like, uh, and it presses up against my heart and it's right. It sits right in my solar plexus and I still have it. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm treating the wrong thing. Maybe I'm trying to treat the issue with thoughts, with changing thoughts, when really what I have to do is I have to change the feeling in my body. And what I realized was that that trauma from my childhood was stored in my solar plexus. And on top of that, that solar plexus energy was my younger self. It was my sort of 9, 10, 12-year-old self that saw my dad kind of leave me in a way. Because before 10, he was very attentive to me. Like he taught me how to play chess and ride a bike and hit a ball and and all that kind of stuff. And then once I got to be 10 or 11, I saw him really starting to decline. My mental ability became sharper. So I really saw what was happening to him. And I kind of withdrew from him. So what happened was, you know, when you withdraw from love, you know, basically anxiety isn't too far behind that. So I had to really reconnect with that, you know, 13 year old boy who saw his dad, just, he wasn't going to get better. He wasn't going to make it. Uh, and eventually my dad did commit suicide, like, you know, when I was 26. So that would have been about, you know, 13 years later because he was just getting worse and worse and worse. But for me, you know, I left medicine because it was just, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't help me with my anxiety medications, you know, numbed it a bit, but it didn't actually help the underlying cause. 
And what I had to do was find the underlying cause, which I, I found in my body and then treat that as my younger self. So now when I get stressed, I put my hand over my solar plexus. I try and connect with that younger version of myself and, and really show him that he's cared for and that he's loved and he's safe because there's part of our brain called the amygdala that people often call the fear center, which isn't really all that accurate, but it works for some explanations. But the thing about the amygdala is it has no sense of time and it never forgets. So any trauma that you have when you're younger uh, or throughout, throughout your life is stored by that amygdala. And it also, when, when that, when that trauma comes back into awareness, it takes you back to that age where the trauma was uh, occurred. So for me, it takes me back into this time when I'm like 11 or 12 years old and I'm feeling helpless and hopeless. So I have to go back and I have to use that, that solar plexus area of alarm as a conduit to connect with that 11 or 12 year old in me and show him that, you know, we're not back there anymore because the amygdala will make us feel like we're that age again. We're like 11 or 12 or whatever the, the age that our trauma really occurred. So it's really showing that 11 or 12 year old that no, you know, we are actually in 2021 now where we're, we're uh, not that child that we used to be because that, that, that overriding sense is that we are this helpless 12 year old. And when we get into really deep anxiety, I always say that all emotional overreactions are age regressions. You know, so if you see someone really losing their shit, sorry if I, sorry no, if I no, swear. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, but if you see someone really losing it, like you can guarantee they're in an age regression. Like you can absolutely guarantee it. So it's a matter of, okay, can I go back to that place that I had those traumas and realize that I'm not in that state anymore? I'm not, I'm not in the house uh, with a depressed father who's, mm -hmm. you know, looking like he might commit suicide and I can't go out and play with my friends because I got to hang around the house because mom's working and I don't know what dad's going to do. So, you know, there's this sense of immobility, I think, that comes with that, that anxiety. And that's why I think things like yoga and movement and dance and that kind of thing help because it breaks that sense of immobility, that frozen tonic immobility we had when we were, ch when we were children and we were exposed to trauma. Now, if you didn't have childhood trauma, you know, it's, it's still a similar pattern. Like we still go through these, these things, even as adults, you know, PTSD as adults, we still have these traumatic things that impact our amygdala and take us back to a place. And I, I can see, you know, if you're, if you are with your partner, when they sustain the injury, you know, I can see your amygdala encoding that. And then you going back to that same place when the accident first happened, and not fully processing it and not really realizing that you're not there anymore. And when you get, you know, helpless, like when, when he does, you know, spike a fever or there's something wrong that you can't quite get your hand on and you're sitting in a merge and you don't know what the frick is going on. You know, I can see being transported by your amygdala back to the time that that, that injury first happened. So yeah. it's a matter of, can you go back to that point and can you find your, you know, younger self because you were younger at the time that it happened. And can you really reassure that, that, that person that you're not powerless anymore, you've got all sorts of skills, you've learned all sorts of um, new patterns and new ways of dealing with it. But there will be part of you when you get stressed that will go, you know, into that same place when the, when the injury first occurred. So that was a very long answer, but, but, you know, a great if there's answer. anything you want to follow up with that, I'm happy to do that. Well, yeah, this is a really good, um, 
place to talk about. I know we had some questions from our followers of how do you find alarm in the body if you have a spinal cord injury if you can't feel? Yeah. And I, I have question. a little I have a little personal story for you because I know you'll get sure. a kick out of this. Um with the awareness piece that comes with this or whatever. Um before my partner's injury seven years ago, I would say almost 10 years ago now, we started going to Dr. Joe Dispenza seminars. And we are getting into, you know, rewiring the brain and all that stuff, doing the meditations and all that stuff. And so we're, we're very familiar with like retraining your brain and what happens during meditation, what happens in the, when your body's in fight or flight. Then my partner had his accident and, you know, we both kind of went into like fight or flight all the time, trying mm-hmm. to heal, get over the, you know, get over the the tension and the, the craziness that happens when you first get injured. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a couple of years after that, when things started to settle down, my partner started getting, we call it the twitch. And he started, whenever he would get into his lazy boy at night, because I use the lift and I get him into his lazy boy, and he sits and starts relaxing. And like clockwork, almost every single night, he'll start getting a twitch. And it'll either be yeah. in his right leg or his left leg. And so what started happening is um, we started kind of just paying attention to like what was going on in his body and what he'd experienced during the day and what was happening. And long story short, when we started getting into his body and when he started going back to the day of his accident and going back to his memories of ICU and his memories of getting hit over the head with the flooring that, that paralyzed him, he would go into that place and he would literally put his hand over his chest. And when his twitch was in the right leg, something would stop it. And it was just literally him getting into his body and just being like, you're back there right now. I know you are. You're remembering this. You don't need to be afraid anymore. You're safe now. And the twitch would go away. And of course, um, you know, my mom's an alternative, uh, healer. She's a TCM doctor. And so she's all into this stuff. That's why I loved your stuff sure. to begin with. Um, cause she <laughs> understands that she, she literally is like, has been talking about what you're talking about for so long. And she understands how the body shows these things to you. But I find it interesting that like these things come up as not necessarily pain in the chest, like traditional panic or anxiety with when you have a spinal right. cord injury, like they come up from my partner as a twitch in his leg that is unrelenting unless he literally goes in into a little meditation and says, you're okay, you're safe. You're not back at the injury site. And he, he trains himself. And now it's yeah. gotten to the point where it's not every day relent- relentlessly anymore. It's, you know, it started to be every second day and then it was every third day. And now it's probably twice a week where he knows the cause of it. And it just is kind of proof to us that this, is, this isn't, this is you know, hoobity-jibbity stuff. Yeah. Like, this is real. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the energy has got to go somewhere, right? Like it really does. And, and people, I mean, I know throughout medical school, I thought that I had, uh, ALS because my muscles and to this day, they still do. They still just twitch uncontrollably. Like I, I barely feel them and they wow. don't, they don't impact me anyway, but I, I still have these fasciculations in my muscles. So the energy does have to go somewhere. You know, and both Cynthia and I have these things that we call the jerks and, and it's mostly a, a, an involuntary uh, contraction of our abdominal muscles. Cause Sin, Sin's mother, when she was younger, was fairly, 
um, selfish and didn't really look after Cynthia as well as she could have. And, um, so Cynthia has this, this thing where she, she, you know, she gets these jerks, like she'll just lie there and the abdominal muscles, like a bracing, it's like a shielding. And I have the same thing. So it was really curious that we call them the jerks. And it's the same idea is that there's this in, involuntary bracing and often what'll happen. And this is what, you know, didn't surprise me when you said you put him in his chair is that when we feel relaxed, that's when the jerks come on because, and this is my theory about that is that when, when we were younger, we couldn't let down our guard. We could, we had to be vigilant. So when we are relaxing and our body, the muscles in our body relax, there is this compensatory contraction, involuntary contraction to try and keep us vigilant and try to keep us safe and try to keep us shielded. So that's what I, that's what I think really happens with, uh, with the jerks and with, you know, involuntary muscle contractions and that kind of thing. And sometimes, you know, when I get a massage or it doesn't happen so much anymore, but a few years ago when I got a massage and I was really relaxed, I would get a panic attack because the message that, that I got when I was younger was it's not safe to feel safe. It's not safe to relax. So when I get these, you know, this massive relaxation experience through a massage, of course, my system, my nervous system would go, this isn't safe. So it would sort of snap me back into vigilance again. So the more relaxed I got, the more, the more it was, it was likely to, to induce a panic attack, which well, really doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. This is yeah. huge because this is where that awareness comes from, right, Elena? Like where you have to pay attention to what your body's doing in order to see this. And like people are so f- afraid of panic and anxiety, but when you just understand that it's a physiological response to trauma in the body, when you really get that, then it doesn't scare you as much, right? Like as soon as you flip the switch and you're like, you know, like what you were saying earlier, Dr. Dr. Kennedy, about how it's like you change your perception on it, you realize, oh, I'm not this anxiety. This is happening to me and this is my body trying to keep me safe. And it's just a program. It, it makes it so like you're more empowered, right, Elena? Like, I, Elena, what are your experiences with this kind of thing? Well, I'm just trying to think about sort of going back to what you were saying about, you know, going to that state of relaxation, especially within our community. Yeah. We hear women, women often speaking about it's not even, I want to say it's not even the secondary conditions that sort of put that alarm in your, in your system. It's more so the daily tasks of multitasking, taking care of your own needs, taking care of your partner, pardon me, while also keeping up with the household, um, you know, making the plans, paying the bills, doing the grocery shopping, the laundry, the pets, the kids, the, you name it. And I feel like, you know, we sort of try to balance that the best that we can. And it is really, it's, it's a few jobs in one, you know, it's more than a second job, um, that when it comes time to relax, it's almost like, like many women in our community have said it's impossible, you know, and we've read many, many memes on, you know, when you're going to sleep at nighttime and you're finally trying to sleep and you're like, wake up in a panic, like, holy shit, where's my passport? Or, uh, did I forget to lock the doors or did I forget to pay a bill? You know, so you kind of have these sporadic thoughts that are entering into your brain very intrusively that are not necessarily of any significance. 
it's just that it's really hard to get to that state of not being an alarm. And um, when you're saying it's time to relax, you know, it's quite impossible. I want to say it's quite not impossible, but quite difficult and challenging for many women in our community to even sit down. You know, your partner is comfortable. Let's say he's set up, he's doing his work and you're sitting I don't know, on the lazy boy in the living room having a cup of tea. But you know that at any moment, he will say, oh, I dropped something. Can you come pick it up? Oh, I need my leg bag emptied. Can you come do that? Oh, babe, do you know what time it is? Or just other little questions that sort of forcefully get into that time of quote unquote relaxation that I don't know exactly what your advice would be for somebody. How would you manage that for these women that are truly working two or three jobs on top of everything else? Yeah. I mean, it's like, there's a story that I have about um, one of my anxiety uh, patients and he was all hyped up on, um, he had a, a flight to take a business flight. He had to take it for a business trip at the end of the month. And he was just worried about flying and vigilant about, Oh my God, the plane could crash. This could happen. This could happen. And then of course he got there and he got back and he was, you know, landed safely. Everything was fine. He saw me in the office and he says, yeah, and six months from now I have this or six weeks from now I have this dental procedure. So we went from worrying every day about the flight to worrying every day about the dental procedure. So it is one of these things that I think that we get into this idea. There, there is this sort of safety in the sense of vigilance, at least familiarity when we have the sense of vigilance. So what I would say, and, and Cynthia and I do this and, and we just, you know, we just kind of lie in bed beside each other and we go for the next five minutes, like the only thing, <laughs> the only thing I'm going to look, listen to and, and, and feel is me. And the next five minutes, the only thing that you listen to and feel is you. So. Basically, that five minutes is is sacred. So there is no, you know, can you pick this up or what time is it or whatever. You make this agreement with your partner that, it, and it's only five minutes. But I'll tell you, it's like the the old story about holding up that glass of water. I don't know if you've heard this, but it's it's an old kind of thing that has done the rounds on social media. It's like if you hold up a cop a mug of coffee for out, out on an outstretched arm, you can hold that for like five or 10 minutes without too much of a problem. But if you tried that, hold that for an hour, it's your arm is really going to, um, and if you tried to hold that for an entire day, your arm would just be absolutely falling off with exhaustion and pain. So it's just being able to put that cup of coffee down, even if it's five minutes. And even if you know, you know, that that's, that's all you have. At least you can, you have this agreement that for five minutes, there is no, there's nothing that can affect me. I'm only responsible for myself. The other thing that I, I would strongly suggest is getting some yarn, like a color of yarn. I know this sounds weird. Getting a color of yarn that you really like. And then basically sitting on the floor and making a little circle of that yarn around you. And some people make a circle like tight, like it's around them about a three inch, you know, kind of uh, radius around them. Uh, and some people it's like a 12 foot circle and they sit in the middle of it. But for, you know, the next minute or two minutes or whatever, you just say to yourself, the only thing that matters for the next two minutes is me. The only thing that matters for the next two minutes is me. And you sit within that and you look at that little boundary that you've created and you're the only one because boundaries really aren't so much about keeping other people out. It's keeping yourself in. 
So, and it's just learning and then, you know, and learning that when you do that, there will be this sense of I'm selfish. I shouldn't be doing this. This is not, you know, I I should be um, looking at something else. I should be looking after something. Does he need something? You know, it's just, and, but it's not for a long period of time. It's like, like the guy who was always worried about the next thing. It's just taking a couple of minutes each day where you know that you can't be, you can't be touched in a way that you can't be asked to do something or you can't. And then it does allow you to kind of put that coffee cup down and it doesn't take a tremendous amount of time, but it does take discipline because there is that safety that we get. And I got this, this sense of vigilance with my dad, right? That that we do get this sort of familiarity in this safety of being vigilant all the time. Because most thing, most times when we're vigilant, things don't go wrong. But, you know, that doesn't last. I'll, often some things will. But so it's what I'm saying is it's trying to teach your unconscious mind that there is a point in your day where all you're responsible for is yourself, even if it's just for 30 seconds. You know, even it's just to show that little island of safety that you have in there, that you create that in your unconscious mind that, that for the next 30 seconds, the only thing that matters is me. And, I, and it, yeah. it really does make a difference. Well, it does. And that's huge because I feel like, uh, especially younger women, they have this thing in millennials and all that stuff where it's like extremes, like where you almost frame it as like, well, if I can't have two hours of freedom or I can't have six hours of freedom a day, then I'll have nothing at all. And then there's no point. And it's right. just so funny because a lot of us think that way. But when you really understand that five minutes is enough time to completely reset your nervous system and you start thinking different thoughts because your nervous system isn't amped up, it's enough time, even if you have five minutes. And then slowly you can move to 10 minutes and then you can move to 20. And then by the time, you know, you're at 30 minutes, you're in a full blown meditation practice and you didn't even know how you got there. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you have that time, I mean, 30 minutes is a long time when you've got, you know, someone who's that dependent on you for sure. But if, if they're out or, you know, if they're getting a, a, you know, some rehab or they're getting something like that, you know, take that time and really, you know, avoid the thing, uh, you know, the list like, okay, I, I, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I, but in that list, you know, put five minutes yeah. to yourself in the car you know, put on like your favorite song, like music is so important just to reset your nervous system. Mm -hmm. And the thing is your unconscious mind really has no sense of time. So, you know, five minutes, a disciplined five minutes can be as healthy for you as three hours because you're, you are putting down that cup of coffee. You are putting down, you are giving it a rest. And you're also making the intention that at that point, all that matters is you. And then you have to deal with all this, oh, I'm selfish. I shouldn't be doing this. I should be making lists. I should be doing, this has got to be done. You know, no, no, you learn to get, to put that cup of coffee down so that you can get a bit of a break and you can teach yourself that there is a break there. It isn't just constant, unrelenting stress. Right. That's very interesting. And that stress, you know, Brooke and I, I'll often talk about this within um, ourselves, but also within the group as that stress on how can that stress over time manifest itself in the body as pains. And Brooke and I sometimes say they're phantom pains, you know, uh, the pain around your chest. Sometimes we get back pain. And a lot of the time I think that we sort of in the community push 
to rationalize it from saying, you know, it's the role of caregiver. Maybe we're bending a little bit off. Maybe we're not necessarily following the proper mechanics of how to do a proper transfer that, you know, the twist and the pull and the, the, you name it. We've, we've had some very interesting situations, you know, for example, I've picked my partner off, off the ground many times um, on my own and he's six foot two and he's, you know, 220 pounds. So (laughs) we've been put in these positions. And I think part of the, part of the issue, yeah, part of the issue is that the medical system so heavily relies on spousal caregivers, um, you know, without any compensation or without any rec- recognition that I feel that we're really truly brainwashed from the time that they leave rehab, that this is, you know, have a look around, sweetie, do you see anybody else? Nope. So I guess we're going to have to just do it. So we, we get into these beliefs that, you know, green and bear it, just do it. You're the only one there. There is nothing else you can do. And <clears throat> some of those pains are they make a whole heap of sense. Of course, we injure ourselves. But what about those pains that we have in our body from literally holding all the pieces together or the lack of communication because out of the fear that you don't want to hurt your partner's feelings because of what you're feeling. And especially in our community, this has been highlighted that the care, the caregiver's do you know they they are the secondary person in the relationship and a lot of the time they do get um unseen and some a lot of the time we're seen as the nurses rather than the spouse so you know part of the reason why we began wags of sei in uh 2017 was because caregivers were not recognized spousal caregivers were no recognized were not recognized there were no resources there were no groups, no activities. Um, our partners were able to, off the get-go, and rightfully so, attend occupational therapy, physical therapy. They had counseling. They had yoga classes. They had hands class. But at the end of the day, there was nothing for the spouse because we were seen as as the nurse, as the caregiver. Oh, she'll just do it, and we'll just depend on that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, there's such a there is a difference between the physical pain, but what about the pain that comes from just holding it all together? What kind of advice would you give to the women who are sort of thinking, you know, I don't really have an avenue. I don't really have the support, whether it's financial or I just don't have the family support or friend, friend support to go to. What, what kind of advice would you give to these women who are experiencing this tremendous amount of pain in their body, but it's from, more from the stress and from keeping it all together? Yeah. I mean, often I'll see people with, with you know, irritable bowel syndrome and fibromyalgia and all that kind of thing. Um, it's really you asking for your own attention. Really, that's that's really what it is. It, it's the, when I see people with with pain, like doctors are pattern recognizers, right? We we recognize patterns, and if things don't fit a certain pattern, we'll say to the you know the patient, "I think this is all in your head." I mean, sometimes we won't say that directly to people, of course, but but that's the feeling that we get. Well, this is all in your head, but you know that energy that builds up and builds up and builds up, it's got to go somewhere. And it comes out a lot of times in physical pain and pain that doesn't make sense. You know, I, and Cynthia will get that sometimes too. All of a sudden she'll just, her right shoulder through no, she hasn't been doing anything. She hasn't, we'll just get this incredible sense of pain, you know, and then basically, you know, I, I sort of rub it a little bit and we sort of say, look, you know, where are you not looking after yourself? Cause this clearly, you know, this is clearly something because it has no precipitating 
factors other than the fact that she's stressed right out and it shows up this way. You know, where are you not looking after yourself? Where are you not putting yourself first? And a lot of people who are caregivers have a hard time with that whole putting myself first thing because it's like, well, I can't, because if I do that, then everything's going to, everything's going to go collapse on me. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, I think that's true. But I think a lot of times that's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of story behind that as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of keeping up again. It's just that sense of vigilance, that sense of like, I always have to be on because there's just so much to do. You know, you're basically living two people's lives. Right. And, and it, I mean, so, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And I mean, the concept of time, you know, it, it's a real thing. We only have 24 hours in a day. Yeah. That that conversation, sure, there is a narrative behind that. But that conversation is very real for women who are doing this. Yeah. And, you know, can you get in a conversation with your, with your partner about this? Like this is, and I'm not saying, yeah, like, I'm not putting this on you. This is whatever. I just, you know, I listened to this doctor and he said that I, I need to take a small bit of time, amount of time every day for, for me just to kind of reset myself, even if it's five minutes, you know, and just sort of see how that, and I'm sure, you know, most you know, your partner's going to go, of course, you know, they, they, I'm sure they really appreciate, um, all that you do for them, even though, you know, <laughs> you know, we always, I was thinking about this the other day, just because uh, I deal with a lot of people with ang- relationship anxiety and, you know, a lot of times people take their frustration out on their partner, which must be just massive for you guys, because there must be so much frustration on both of your parts. And then you've got to manage your own frustration as the caregiver and then their frustration as, as the person who's suffering and all the emotional story that goes on with that. Like I always, you know, he's got this spinal cord injury. He can't do anything. He's lost so much. Like it's just the story, the story, the story, the story. And, and I think it's a lot of it is, is if we could go to, you know, 10% story and nine, 90%, you know, connection and feeling for ourselves. Easier said than done. Of course. Absolutely. But it's just seeing yourself. It really is coming down. And that's how we heal from anxiety. That's how we heal from anything is really just seeing yourself and trying to give yourself some attention as best you can within the situation that you're in and make and make the intention because otherwise, you know, if we don't make the intention to really look after ourselves, whatever that means, if that's, you know, five minutes a day of just basically being responsible for only yourself, you know, just make that intention because it does tend to kind of create um, an atmosphere that this isn't everything. Like this isn't everything. This isn't my whole life. Like even though it is, but what you're doing in a way is you're kind of tricking your unconscious to give you a rest and give you a break. And if you make that intention, the subconscious or unconscious mind, it wants a program to follow. And if you don't give it a program to follow, say, I am going to take five minutes every day for myself, just in a quiet place. If there's a, like a, a piece of yarn around me or whatever, I am going to do that. If you don't do that, it's just like you're holding up that cup of coffee for hours and hours and hours. And of course that energy has got to go somewhere and it will often show up as physical pain. And I see that so commonly in people, like so commonly that physical pain is basically uh, a manifestation of emotional pain that isn't being worked out or isn't being dealt with. Yeah. And your body's such an amazing thing. Like it wants to get your attention. It wants to help And it can you. heal you. Like yes. it can heal you too, yes. right? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's only way is through pain, but you know, there's a lot of other ways, but the, but pain is something that'll get your attention. Right. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we live in a society where it's really glorified to like Helena and I talk about this a lot, like have your button pushed, 
like where mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, a quick fix is, is we've been trained that, you know, a quick fix is all there is. And if, if, if it's not a quick fix, then it's not worth it and it's not working. But from my own experience, like I can honestly say that like you have to use your willpower. You have to stick to it. You have to, like you're talking about earlier, just like, you know, dedication to what you're doing. You have to do that. And it's not an instant fix. It's retraining the neural pathways in your brain and body. And that is not an easy task. And so I think when you kind of reframe it that way too, when it's just like, no, you're in making an investment in your own physical, emotional support and for the future, like you are all you have, right? At right. the end of the day, we can tell each other yeah. stories all we want about, you know, my partner is my everything, my partner, if something happened to him, oh my God. But it's like, you know what, something's going to happen eventually, you are all you have. And to make that investment into yourself and to just really stick to something, like you say, five minutes a day is all it takes. And, you know, no matter what, right? Even if you're tired, even if you're in the mm-hmm. ER, even if you're going to a doctor and you're running on all, you know, on, you know, caffeine and, and no sleep, you still yeah. stick to it. Right. Because that's, that's training. Like you're, you're not going to go to the gym for two days and expect to have the body that you want. Right. right. Why not? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can I take a pill and, uh, just all of a sudden drop all my body fat and, and look like Arnold you know, Schwarzenegger. Oh, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. We need the fat for our brains. <laughs> Open the door. There's a bomb in there. Anyway, so uh, that, that was my Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. So you, you, wanted a little bit of, you wanted a little bit of comedy. So I, I, I did that. But here's Bravo. the thing. Like here's, here's, here's one thing that I, when you were talking, it's a, you know, I can, I can hear people listening to this going, yes, I know I have to look after myself. I know that I'm number one, but it's so freaking hard to do that. Like, like I, you know, the, the, the period of time that I have, have the hardest time with my anxiety patients trying to get better is when they first start getting better because there's so much resistance to not feeling the same way you've been feeling for the last two, five, 10, 15 years. Like it's, there's so much resistance and you have to be aware of that, that there is going to be a resistance to look after yourself. And if you can, if you can see it, if you can see that resistance coming, like it's like, oh, well, I'll do, I'll do it later. I'll do this. I'll do it. But it's really making that intention and sort of going through the pain because it's not a quick fix. In fact, it's the opposite of that because when you start looking after yourself there's a tremendous resistance to sort of doing that because you've to to survive you trained yourself i have to be vigilant i have to do all this i have to get all this i have to get all this and when you feel just much like i was after a massage when you feel like you were letting that go you'll get the 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 immediate and opposite reaction of no i can't do this because i have so many things to do and the thing is you know you really have to 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 discipline yourself make that intention that you are going to connect with yourself that that pain that you're feeling look at it compassionately as the you know the younger version of yourself, if you want, asking for your attention. Like if you had a child come up, come up to you with their hands up crying, would you push them away? Yeah. <laughs> no. Exactly. You know, if there's a child in the mall and they were crying and they lost their parents and they, you know, they, they lifted up their hands for you to pick them. Of course you'd pick them up and you'd, you know, try to comfort them. think it depends how cute they are though. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Some of them are pretty obnoxious. That's true. Would you That's give them true. a panel and tell them to go away? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the, but we do that. But we do that with the, ourselves, though. I like, know. It really, imagine that child in you, like holding up their hands, like to be held, and you're going, "No, I, I need to do this. I, I've got to. I got to make this list. I've got to do this. I've got to." You know. So that's really what it comes down to. But there will be. It's not this. It, it's really the opposite of a quick fix. Because when you start changing that behavior of you know constant vigilance, there will be a, a whip. There there will be a, a, fla- a whiplash or a like a 
I don't know what they call it, a kickback, you know, of not wanting to do that because your brain, you've trained yourself from the time that this injury happened that you have to be vigilant. But I'm saying that you don't. I'm saying that you have to be, you have, you have to be vigilant for maybe 23 hours and 55 minutes a day, but maybe five minutes a day, you don't. And then once you seeing that other side. It's like the, that movie, The Sixth Sense, you know, with Bruce Willis, like 20 years ago. You know, once you see that movie, you can't see it again because you, you know, you've seen the other side. And, but, but there's a, so much resistance to going at that old behavior of hypervigilance because there is a sense of safety in it because it has gotten you this far, but it's exhausting you. Well, and it's amazing. It's amazing what the brain, not just the brain, the body will do. Can take. Oh yeah. With, with resistance. Like, I'm so glad that you brought up resistance because it's so funny. Elaine and I were talking about this the other day. Um, we were talking about how there is not a lot out there as far as people writing and talking about this or experts looking into this about resistance and how, um, your body and your mind will fight back to keep you in the same patterns. And people, I'll, I'll use a little personal story. People like, I didn't really understand how much resistance mentally and physically I would have to overcome in order to stop being hypervigilant. I've been hypervigilant since I was three years old. I'm, I'm a lifer. Yeah, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Literally yeah. a lifer. Right. And that's yeah. why I relate to you so well is because it's something that I've trained myself my entire life to be. And so we all have that kind of thought of like, there's a big bad wolf on the other side. There's a big, bad, scary monster waiting or something horrible is going to happen if you give up that hypervigilance. And so like, yeah. I've trained myself to be that way. It's my own fault. I yeah. did this to myself. But when I started letting go of that, and when I started really investing um, in time for myself and, but also trying to unwind that story and just being like, no, I can let this go. I can breathe through this. Oh, you don't even want to know what started happening in my brain oh, yeah. and body. It was Shame, guilt, all that stuff. Shame, guilt, intrusive thoughts. Like I remember one time I was showering my partner in the morning and I had this vision of like him being on the floor of the shower. Like, honestly, like this kind of stuff happens. And like, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't expect that. So I was very shocked. But that's why I'm so glad you're bringing this up because your thoughts will tell you things to keep you in that program no matter what. You know what I mean? And you have to be strong enough in your center of self in order to look at that with awareness instead of, oh my gosh, I'm becoming something else. You know what I mean? What's, what's your biggest piece of advice for someone who is just like me, who is just so used to being hypervigilant and that wants to break out of that, but that is experiencing, um, stuff like, you know, um, shame, guilt, all these feelings of like these intrusive thoughts. What's your advice for someone like that? Well, it's a, it's really awareness, Brooke. It's really awareness. It's just really seeing how your natural propensity is to act and knowing that you can, you can see that, but you don't have to be it. The more you can see it with curiosity, the more you can sort of bring it in because curiosity does this thing that it takes a lot of the emotion out of it. Hmm. I'm wondering why, um, I had this dream. I keep having this dream that my partner's dead. You know, I remember with my dad when, I, when he was just, you know, I was in my early twenties, early to mid twenties and he was just getting worse and worse and worse. There was part of me that would just wish he would die. It's like, it was just yeah. so incredibly difficult to see him. You know, he was declining steadily and, and, and there was a tremendous amount of guilt when he finally did, you know, commit suicide, but there's also a, a huge sense of relief as well. So we're this, you know, we're this complex system 
you know, and, and, and it's, and it's, it's learning really how to accept the negative thoughts as just, you know, letting off steam. It's just the way that your brain works and tries to handle it. I would recommend this book called Existential Kink by Carolyn Elliott. Cause really it's, it's, um, it's a book about taking the negative emotion and just embracing the shit out of it. You know, um, and I tell this story, like my, my friend, Dom, we've been friends since we've been teenagers. So it's like 40 years now we've been friends and, um, he's a trial lawyer and does extremely well for himself. And he lives about four blocks up the street from me and he drives this BMW i8, this beautiful, beautiful car. And every time he drives by the, by the house, it's like, oh, I wish I had that car. Just like, uh, you know, and then I think, well, if I worked a little harder or if I did this a little more or maybe this, and it's like, no, that's not it. What, it, what I love doing now is when I see that car, I just go into the jealousy and the envy and I just swim in it and I just relish it. It's like, oh, I just love this, how jealous I'm feeling about having him having a car. You know, it's like rather, because before I would go, well, he's worked hard, you know, he's done really well for himself and he deserves that. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. Like you go in there and you just get that negative energy and you just suck it in and you just sit in it and play with it and enjoy it. Because, and that's, and basically when you can enjoy the negative energy, the alarm can't hold you anymore because you've shown yourself that you're not going to run from it. You're not going to start creating story around it. You're not going to try and make yourself feel better. You're just going to go in there and you're just going to feel all the negativity that's in there. And then you realize, you know what? That feels bad. But it, it, it's way worse sitting in there and trying to make all these stories up to try and make myself feel better. So that was a long answer for just saying, like, really embrace the negativity, embrace the negative thoughts, embrace all that stuff. Because when you, when you do that, you diffuse so much of it. If you just run from it every time it comes up, every time a negative thought comes up or every time a negative emotion comes up, you never learn how to acclimatize to it. And really, yeah, I want to finish one more thing. Bessel van der Kolk wrote this book called The Body Keeps the Score. And in that book, he says, you know, we're not teaching people how to get rid of their anxiety. What we're doing is we're teaching them how to acclimatize to it so that they don't compulsively have to go in and add all these thoughts to it and just make it worse and worse and worse. So once you acclimatize to it, once you feel like, yeah, I felt this before, it feels uncomfortable. I have it in my body. I know it's there. Um, it's probably the representation of my younger self. Now, can I just love it? Can I just take it and just love it as best I can so that I'm not afraid of it anymore? So powerful. That makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. It's funny because I actually am just looking at the book on my bedside table right now. It's a great book, but I was sort of giggling because, you know, you saying these, you know, saying just kind of like sit there and just like love these emotions. I think that it's also very important to know that things are not necessarily good or bad, but thinking it makes it that way. Right. You know, in our society, especially yeah, Shakespeare. So- yeah, exactly. Right. And, um, and, um, our society is so quick to sort of, we, we want to categorize naturally as humans, we want to make make sense of the world. So we put everything in categories, but that's not necessarily the case. And, you know, even statements like, and we say this all the time, you know, negative thoughts, negative emotions, it's not necessarily that they are negative. It's just the way that we've been trained. So when you're saying things like, you know, this, this coming up with jealousy, these, these emotions bumbling over and instead of you know like what you're saying 
studying it and just loving it and just seeing where it's coming from instead of just, oh my gosh, I can't think this way. Quick, you know, change the channel real quick. Let's change it. Let's get yeah. out of this zone um, to kind of sit in that. And especially within our community, I know that with overwhelm and um, a lot of women speak of overwhelm or frustration or just, I can't take it anymore. You know, one of the beautiful things is being able to say, yeah, I am overwhelmed right now. Yeah, I am feeling this way. And those are valid feelings and emotions rather than saying, why am I feeling this way? I must be a terrible person. I can't believe I'm thinking these things. And that's something that that Brooke and I talk about all the time. Well, you know, what's interesting. You know, what's interesting, though, is the alternative. Like, I always think about it that way. It's like, okay, where has anxiety gotten you? Where has worry and hypervigilance gotten you? Like, what, what does it do? It just hurts yeah. you, right? Like you, you, when you start to think about it that way too, is like, you just realize, wow, I know you mentioned that in your book that you just, you wasted so many years being anxious, right? Sort of. Yeah. I have a different, a little perspective on it since I've written the book, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's all grist for the mill on some level. I think once you stop being afraid of it, it, it stops running your life, but that it takes practice. Like it really does take practice getting connected with yourself and really, you know, any, any feeling that I have, I embrace right, you know, now. And, and often it's the younger version of me and I have to find that younger version of me, you know? So a lot of times when, you know, people will say, how are you doing these days? Because we have this new puppy. My mother just broke her second hip, um, you know, in four months. And, um, you know, I don't know how well she's going to do through this. And there's a lot of stuff going on with the book and there's good stress and bad stress, but, but people say like, how are you doing? And I said, you know what? I'm overwhelmed, but I'm equipped. So I know, I know how to deal with it now. Five years ago, it would have just spun me completely out of control and I wouldn't have been able to sleep. I wouldn't be able to eat all this stuff. And that would have further, you know, the cycle would have, would have further continued. Now I, you know, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. With my mom and that kind of stuff, it's uncomfortable, but it doesn't have the same weight that it used to, you know, my perception of it is completely changed. And I remember Years ago, I had a patient uh, who I had on anti-anxiety medication and, and she sent me an email and she said, you know, Dr. Kennedy, I'm, I'm running out of my anti-anxiety medication and I need you to refill my perception. Now so she meant awesome. to say, she meant to say refill my wow. perception, uh, refill my prescription. But, uh, and I, well, I had a good relationship with her. So I, I emailed her back and said, Hey, if I could refill your perception, uh, you wouldn't need the prescription. You know, so it's just, it really is perception. It really is about how we perceive things and the stories that we tell ourselves and to go into our body and allow it to sort of swish around in there and feel it and acclimatize to it as opposed to, you know, that will, that will eventually allow us to deal with it. But if we jump into our heads every time we have a negative, you know, feeling, we never learn to acclimatize to it. We never learn how to adapt to it and it always will overwhelm us. So powerful, really powerful. Let's um, let's do a quick little case study um, before we end the podcast about, let's just say his name is Joe and he is a C3 spinal cord injury. So he has no movement from his shoulders and he struggles with overthinking and worry and he worries about himself and he feels, you know, claustrophobic and he's, he's worried. What would you suggest as a little case study, if he was your patient, what what would you want him to look into or how would you like him to start the process of healing his anxiety? Music. 
That's the first, I do so much of my work intuitively, right? So, so it's hard for me to sort of say, what's a hypothetical situation. If I have someone in front of me and I know their situation and I feel their energy, I can tell. But the first message that I got was music and just, you know, find that vibration because we're all vibration. That's really all we are. And our brain is basically just a reducing machine for our vibration that gives us perceptions of whatever is happening. So if we can, if we can, use the vibration, like a calming vibration, like music, uh, or drum beats or something like that. Um, that really starts to reset what's going on. Now, the other thing is, and like he's C3, so he breathes for himself. Yes. Okay. You know, so, so breath work would be another, another option as well. You know, so breath work would be another, you know, there, there's, there's different types of breath work to do, but there's something called holotropic breath work, um, invented by Stan Groff and his wife, uh, where you sort of hyperventilate and it basically gets you outside of that ego. It gets you outside of that, um, that hypervigilant thought and it gets you into this sort of non-normal, uh, non-egoic state because it's the ego that drives the thoughts. It's basically, so what can you do to kind of calm the ego? And breath work is one of those things for sure that will help calm the ego. Amazing. So, and you know what I yeah. always say about, about guys that still can breathe who have spinal cord injuries is um, they have paralysis on their lungs. So they breathe with their diaphragms. And I'm always, so, right. I always say to Evan, I'm always so jealous because he automatically breathes with his diaphragm, which is how we all should really be breathing. Right. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. So it's something anybody can true. do. Yeah. Breath, you know, breath is really our only direct co- um, connection with our autonomic nervous system, our own conscious connection with our autonomic nervous system that we can control. And even holding your breath, because I, I remember doing um, Byron Katie's school for the work back in 2015, where, you know, Byron Katie's like, is that true? She's the queen of, is that true? Yeah. And, um, and it was helpful, but you know, my, my approach to anxiety is a bit different is that, you know, get out of the cognitive, uh, get out of the, you know, this isn't a big deal. Um, you know, many people have, you know, dealt with this before, get out of the cognitive, get into your body. Your body won't lie to you. Your mind constantly does. So it's really, once you get into your body and devote your attention into your body, then the thoughts don't have the same energy that they did because now you're directing your energy into the sensation of your body as opposed to the the creation of thoughts. And once you start regulating your body, then you can go back into thinking. Then you can really critically appraise what's going on. But you can't really critically appraise anything when your prefrontal cortex, the the, the part of your brain that really does most of your your rational thought is offline because your body's in survival. You're in physiological survival mode so it shuts off the the actual rational part of your brain, which is one of my big issues with CBT is they're trying to, you know, CBT leaves you when, when you need it the most, right? So it's all this stuff that you're supposed to do. They teach you in CBT, but because your prefrontal cortex that engages the CBT in the first place is offline because you're in survival brain, you can't use it. So it, it abandons you when you need it the most. So I always just say, look, get into your body. When you, when you start getting into places that are, that are really just a circular argument, like get into your body and then really, you know, get into the vibration, get into the, you know, play music, whatever you have to do, dance, whatever you have to do, but get into some movement, get into your body. And that, you know, once you settle that out, then you can go back into the thoughts. And also, I think it's important to mention for all our paralysis uh, guys out there um, that even if you can't feel your body, you can still visualize it. You can still direct energy through your body. 
right? Yeah. And I, you know, that's when I was working up for that, for this today, that's what I thought too. It's like, how am I going to get people? And it is sort of that visualization kind of thing, because there's a, there's a lot more ethereal parts to us than, than, than we're just sort of connected through, you know, nerves from the brain. There is a lot more sort of ethereal uh, essence of us that we can feel a quote unquote uh, in a way that maybe doesn't require spinal nerves. For sure. hundred percent. And I truly believe that this way of thinking and what you're teaching right now, like you're a pioneer and I think this is the future. I think that, well, I hope this is the future. I hope this will start being incorporated into Western medicine because like you said before, there are so many things that they just can't do. Right. And, yeah. uh, this is kind of going outside of the box and it's starting to become more accepted and there's starting to be so much proof for uh, like in neurological studies, um, about this kind of stuff. Like even the latest yeah. studies about SSRIs, I was talking to Elaine about this last week is like, there's so many studies that prove that they don't do what, what they thought they were doing. Right. Yeah. So it's just an interesting time to be doing this. And I truly believe that you're a pioneer and we are so, uh, we are so beyond grateful to be able to have you on the podcast. Um, especially during this time when I feel like the whole world is just collapsing in anxiety, right? Yeah, they really are. They um, really are. It's so true. And so thank God for you. You've come at just the right time with all, all of your experiences have led to this, you know, it's, it's amazing. Your story. Yeah, that's true. I used to wonder why, you know, I was a stand-up comedian and a yoga teacher and a doctor and all of a sudden, and now I'm kind of seeing, oh, it all actually, you know, at 60 years old, it all kind of comes, it all kind of comes back into, into play as well, to why I, I did all these <laughs> Like, pardon me? Even with oh, your yeah, wife, like a somatic therapist, yeah. like, like that, yeah. I'm sorry, like just listening to it, it's just like, wow, it's literally your soul was speaking to you all those times when yeah. you're seeing the patients and you literally listened and this is what happened. It's amazing. It does. And, and, and the best treatments come out of, you know, really focusing on, you know, energy and really focusing on, on seeing the person as a whole person. And I think in medicine, you know, um, a lot of times we reduce things down. I mean, that's basically the people that go into medicine love the fact that it can be reduced down into some sort of intellectual process. And, um, it doesn't really create the best sort of empath, empathy in doctors. And it's been shown in medical school that empathy, I laughing, I shouldn't laugh, but empathy drops every year of medical school. Interesting. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I have a doctor in the family and <laughs> I can speak to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, at, at some level we have to too, because you know, right. when, you, when you experience pain, people's pain and, and the, and the, the doctors that burn out are the ones that are the most sensitive. The ones that are most likely to have the good bedside manner are also the ones that are most likely to burn out because they're the most sensitive. The ones that are more robotic and, and look at as an academic exercise, they don't tend to burn out because they don't really get all that emotionally attached. Another example of perception, right? Yes, absolutely. 100%. Wow. Okay. So here's the thing. If you can do one thing is basically separate the feeling in your body from the thoughts of your mind, you know, separate that energy of, of feeling from thinking, because what happens is the, the feeling creates negative thinking, which creates more negative feeling, which creates more negative thinking. So if you can just feel it, if you can just allow yourself to feel that, that energy 
whether or not you have sensation of it or not, but just allow yourself, make the intention to, you know, connect with that energy, even if it's at a vibration level and not add thoughts to it. That that's how we, that's how we heal from anxiety. We don't heal if we keep throwing thoughts on, on the feeling because we never actually learn how to deal with the feeling that way. Yeah. That's amazing. Amazing advice. Um, we're so grateful to have you on again. Um, so if someone wants to contact you, uh, where can they contact you and where can they find your book? And, you know, what should someone do if they want to participate more in the Kennedy method? Yeah. I mean, basically just, um, you know, Google the anxiety MD. I mean, that's not the anxiety doctor, like the anxiety MD and that all my YouTube all my Instagram, all the website stuff shows up from there. The book is available on Amazon and it's also available on Audible. I, I narrated the audiobook and and made it kind of fun as well because it's a fairly heavy subject, you know, so I try to make it as fun as I, I can. And sometimes, like I said, you know, the the com- my comedy brain and my, my sort of uh, healing, helping people brain aren't often the same so you know every once in a while I'll throw in some comedy but usually when I get into like podcasts and stuff I get fairly serious so yeah just the anxiety MD is probably the best way to find me it has been an absolute pleasure having you on today and we know that we will definitely have you back to do another episode of something related to Dr. Russell Kennedy the emotional trauma surgeon we will love to have you back on (laughs) all right so until next time you guys thank you so so much for spending this time with us for taking the time out of your day to connect with the wags of SEI and our guest of the day Dr. Russell Kennedy so until next time stay safe and love each other cheers 